want to learn how to manage your own investments? Are you ready to stop paying investment management fees and start building wealth? The DIY Investing Podcast is dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, and resources you need to be a better investor. Learn how to make investments through the use of fundamental analysis, mental models, and business management insights. Now, here's your host, value investing expert, Trey Henninger. Hello and welcome to the DIY Investing Podcast. My name is Trey Henniger and I'm your host. This week I have a special guest on the show, Jeff Gannon from Focus Compounding Capital Management. Along with his partner Andrew Kuhn, Jeff runs the Focus Compounding blog, podcast, manages individual accounts for investors, and will soon be launching a hedge fund. Jeff, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. So Jeff, I want to get started by asking you how did you first become interested in investing? Uh, I became interested in investing as a teenager. I was, I think, uh, 14 when I bought my first stock. And um, I would, uh, what would happen is that each week uh, I would have breakfast with my dad. We'd go out to some diner. I grew up in New Jersey. There are plenty of diners there. So we'd pick a different diner and uh, we would go there. He worked a lot uh, during the week, so we didn't see each other really during the week. And that was his thing for spending time together. So we would go to a diner and often the conversation would turn to stocks and things because he knew that's something that I was interested in. And um, eventually he uh, was reading some article in a magazine, some sort of personal finance magazine that talked about um, Ben Graham. And he thought, oh, this sounds a lot like how you pick stocks is how Ben Graham, uh, thought about picking stocks. And, uh, so he showed me the article and I had never heard of Ben Graham and I, uh, decided right away to go get, um, the intelligent investor and security analysis. And I read both of those books that weekend and I became kind of, uh, hooked on value investing from that point on. Awesome. Wait, so just to clarify, you read mm -hmm. security analysis in a weekend, because that's and the, yeah, and the intelligent investor, yeah, sure, yeah, and the intelligent investor, because that's not normal, I would say. I mean, I've, I've <laughs> not not that not that getting started with those books isn't normal, because that's how I got my start with intelligent right. investor and security analysis. But that's a, I mean, it's a it's a very thick textbook, basically. Yeah, um, my partner Andrew. Uh, he hates uh, security analysis. He finds it very boring. The Intelligent Investor, you know, it's not his favorite book, but it's easier to uh, to get through. Yeah. But I actually, uh, of the two books, security analysis is really the one that excited me actually more so than the Intelligent Investor. There are a couple of chapters in the Intelligent Investor that are great. Um, basically, there's the margin of safety discussion and also the um, Mr. Market analogy. But the book generally is okay. Um, it's uh, it's a good book, but I think security analysis gets into some more depth on certain ways of the way Ben Graham thought that it was very interesting, very rational approach to investing. And some of the things he talks about, even with different kinds of securities, whether he's talking about bonds or something like that, really seem to be things that I could apply to stocks. So I just was very interested in his way of thinking about things and how logical it was. You have to remember, um, uh, this would have been the late 1990s. So that was a big part of it, I think, too, is that all the other discussion of stocks was not uh, any sort of – you didn't hear anything about value investing. And you didn't uh, – when I looked at stocks 
when I first uh, started learning about them, the prices they traded out didn't make a lot of sense usually. <laughs> so that was a very strange time. And so it was really interesting to read something like security analysis that was so rational at a time that was really irrational. That makes sense. So it was just more, it clicked. I mean, because I've heard that before, basically mm-hmm. a lot of, val- or Warren Buffett has that saying, like value investing either clicks in five minutes, so you're never going to get it. Yeah, it's just very logical. Um, Graham had lots of ideas that were incredibly logical. And once you hear them make a lot of sense, I remember, um, I don't remember which, uh, thing that he wrote that I remember reading at first in, but uh, when I read that, um, he said, uh, you know, you that one of the simplest ways to know if a stock is cheap is to think, well, could it support this amount of bonds? And if it could support this value in bonds and its market cap is below that, then it's obviously cheap. And when I read that, I thought, that's amazing. That's absolutely true. Um, you know, if you look at a company and you say, okay, well, this could support $50 million of bonds and um, that you could issue 50 millions of bonds against it. And people would think that those bonds were secure. Um, and then you have the market cap is 25 million or something. Well, this is an incredibly cheap stock because um, obviously as a shareholder with no debt in front of you, you have all the advantages that a bondholder would have plus more. So oh, it should never yeah. trade at a price like that. And yet sometimes there were stocks that did. So uh, he just had so many things like that that he would talk about that are so logical. And the moment you read the sentence, you understood that he was saying things that made a lot more sense than than how most people practice investing. Yeah, that ma- that makes perfect sense. So I mean, if you were just saying, okay, you know, if the if you have fifty million dollars in bonds, or, or you could have fifty million dollars in bonds, and you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You could still have an operating business beside that, but there's no bonds. It's like mm-hmm. well, the stock should definitely not be worth less than fifty million. Right, and what's amazing about that is we all can see that today much more easily because of private equity. Because those kinds of companies would be scooped up immediately. Because if someone could borrow $50 million to buy a company, then obviously it's going to trade up to $50 million or more eventually because people who are in the business of putting in very little equity to take over companies uh, will do that. But this was a time when there was you – know, when Graham was first writing security analysis and things like that where there was none of that stuff. Yeah. So um, you know, after the 80s and things, that was just familiar to everybody but not back then. That makes sense. So – did you get started then basically as a, a Graham adherent, you know, f- super uh, basically cheap flipping stocks, you know, wide diversification or, or how did that your initial, I guess, strategies develop? That's interesting because at first I would say, although my dad said I was very similar to Ben Graham in my thinking, uh, the truth is perhaps I was a little bit closer to like um, the way Warren Buffett thought about things. Um, Warren Buffett's difference from Ben Graham, even from the very beginning, was he was willing to concentrate a lot more. He was willing to learn a lot more about the business as a business. And um, so even when he bought very cheap things, he bought fewer cheap things than Graham would. Graham would buy 100 stocks if 100 stocks qualified for his sort of criteria. Whereas Buffett would say, let me look at the 100 that Graham owns. I'll buy three or four or five of them. Um, And he'd go learn about the companies. And actually, when I was a teenager – the kinds of investing that I did was probably closer to that. I cared a lot about the business from the very beginning. Um, it had to be something that I understood fairly easily. I'll give you an example. Um, my dad really wanted to diversify into something having to do with healthcare. So he said, well, I don't know anything about that or whatever, but you look at these things and find me a healthcare stock that I would like. And I did. And I looked at all the big pharmaceutical companies first, read all about them, you know, their annual reports and things and said, well, this doesn't make a lot of sense. I really can't tell what their return on uh, their R&D is and things like that. And, you know, I just I don't um, know enough about uh, what they'll be able to replace things when things come off patent and whatever. So you can't own these kinds of things. But 
I found a company that did um, basically urine and blood testing. Okay. And I learned about that, and it was in a local area. That's usually how these things start. They're kind of regional, and then they get bought up, and, and eventually you get these national ones that are built from a bunch of buy up, buyouts. Um, but I realized, like, I could look at the things like root density and stuff like that and figure out why they would have advantages and why someone in an area would become the leader in this sort of thing. And it was very predictable. So I said, yeah, you don't buy any of those big pharma things. Buy this little uh, testing center thing. And so um, that's the sort of way that I thought about things. And and in terms of my own things that I own for myself, uh, they were usually businesses that I could um, learn about firsthand in some way. I bought stock in a company that I worked for um, when I was like 14 or so uh, or 15, um, which was I, I um, worked as a cashier in a ShopRite, which is a grocery store chain and a supermarket chain in New Jersey. But it's a co-op. So actually, uh, the company uh, there's a private company, Wakefern, that um, owns the uh, the uh, distribution and stuff like that for it. But the um, actual stores are all run by usually their families and things like that who were members of the co-op. But it happens that one of them is publicly traded. That's the one I worked for, and that's a village supermarket. And so I bought that stock for myself. But I also bought things like. Um, I bought Activision, which is a well-known company now. It's Activision Blizzard now. But at the time, was very far behind, like uh, in terms of popularity of the stock and things like that, was far behind Electronic Arts. But I played lots of um, computer games and things like that and, and some console games by that time and knew a lot of people who did. And so I had some familiarity with that stuff. I bought Coinstar, um, which is a coin counting machine. It, at the time, that's all it did is coin counting. Um and that reason why I bought that was because as I worked as a cashier at um, the ShopRite, I realized how profitable that business was um, in terms of how high they could take commissions. I realized that the people who spent the money in the store immediately after getting the – they would bring in like $60 a quarters or whatever. And then they'd get this little receipt and it would be like found money for them. They really didn't care about how high the commission was that they were paying. And they would use it in store to buy stuff right then, a very large percentage of them. And so I realized what a great business it was in terms of taking out such little square footage in the store and making so much money for the um, the store, the shop right or wherever they would put it. But also just how not sensitive to the exact price the people who used it were. Um, and then there are also just things like you don't have receivables in a business like that. So I just figured that's a great business right away when I saw how Coinstar worked and I found out it was a public company and all that. So it was things like that. Some things I found that I could have some familiarity with and feel like I understood the business and how predictable it was and, and things like that. That was really my focus as a teenager, especially. Okay. So, I mean, so certainly it's good that you knew the, you know, you interacted with it in person. Did you, there's been some commentary that, you know, you should invest in what you know, but you mm-hmm. also don't necessarily want to, you know, if you're just like a customer, you might overestimate your ability to evaluate the business. Did you ever feel like that was a concern for you or did you? Um, so let's see. Um, it, it's a little complicated. Uh, invest in what you know is true to a point. There, there's very little about a business that you need to know 
to understand um, customer behavior and things like that. There's a couple sort of variables about a business that really, really matter. You're not going to know things about I, – I mean I worked at a – so for instance, I worked at a, a supermarket. I didn't know things about the family that ran it and stuff. I mean I knew a little bit. I happened to know like a lawyer they used or something but um, because it's just local. So you know some yeah. things like that. But I, I didn't need to know things like that. Um, and you could figure those things out through filings and stuff. Um, to enough to make guesses and kind of have an understanding of it. But what you wouldn't know unless you were at the locations, um, which was the big thing for me buying that company. So that company was facing some, the stock was down. It was probably, uh, it was definitely underpriced uh, to book of one. Um, it often traded out, I'd say a five or six P there were probably several years where you could have bought it at five or six P. We're talking about village supermarket. And, um, and it was, uh, a thing I guess people didn't understand is a very large percentage of their stores were in northern New Jersey. Um, all of them were in New Jersey at the time, but especially in northern New Jersey. Now, down the shore and stuff is different, but in northern New Jersey, uh, the towns, it'll be difficult to get permission to build a new store, but particularly difficult to get permission to build additional parking. And people living in other parts of the country, like where I live now and stuff, they're used to going to a Kroger that you know has parking all around it, and and you can open competing stores easily, and you can have Whole Foods come in and uh, build a Walmart right next to them, whatever. The likelihood of that happening in those places was very, very slim. So the two concerns they had were um, on the in the stock that people talked about were one um, online grocery shopping actually was a concern. And it's like 20 years later and it's barely made a dent. But at the time, the internet was getting big. So people figured that things like that were going to become very big. They didn't, but that was a concern. The other one was that people figured that Walmart would take over grocery uh, market share in New Jersey. And I just, I lived in New Jersey, so I could see that was not going to happen. Um, Walmart didn't have a chance in that area, you know. Um, yeah, I've once, lived there myself. This, That's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, but a good example, though, is like the parking thing. So it was... The store I worked in, for instance, didn't have enough parking. So literally people would have to circle around at times of the day. Um, they had sometimes not that great relationships with um, tenants next to them and stuff because of issues about parking and about how much they were causing overflowing of stuff into other people's areas and hurting their business and whatever. Um, there was another location of that same company um, that I know a restaurant alleged. I don't know if this is true. But they claimed that a shop right that this company owned um, pushed the landlord to not renew the lease for the restaurant just so they could demolish the restaurant and use it for parking. Wow. So those kinds of things give you an idea of the moat around it. And so if people think real – you know, when you're not in the area, you may think – and I read uh, write-ups that people had online where they say like, oh, well, this competition can come in. But it can't come in because to have – these stores were often 60,000 square feet or something. To have a 60,000 square foot store that's doing at that time the equivalent in today's dollars, like adjusted for inflation, would be a million dollars a week at least in sales, the store I worked at. Um, that's a high volume for a supermarket. The a average shopping trip is like 50 or $60 or something. So you can imagine how high that has to be in terms of number of people coming in and out of the store. Um, that's just too many people without a lot of parking and without um, – permission for all sorts of things from the town in a very dense area. You know, um, I mean, just from perspective, the entire state of New Jersey is 10 times more densely populated than the country. Northern New Jersey is much more densely populated than the state overall too. So you're talking about levels of population density that are more common in like Japan and stuff than in most U S states. So it, it's almost, although it's all suburban, it is 
severely lacking in things to be able to build a new 60 or 70,000 square foot supermarket. You can put in small locations, yeah. but the question's always been whether those small locations can really compete for weekly shopping trips, you know? Yeah. So like that kind of thing, understanding the local area and understanding the behavior of the people in the store and stuff is very important. Like the example I gave about Coinstar is very important because when you would talk to people, if you don't have an understanding, if you have never talked to customers of a company, you often fall into the idea that price is the most important thing and that they're very sensitive to price. And the truth is there's some customers in some industries that are extremely sensitive to price, right? So if you're selling to Walmart or something, the buyer from them, that's all that they care about from you. And they're going to fight over it every uh, time that you meet. It's an obsession that way. But that's a business customer that's trying to get the lowest possible prices. When you deal with something like Coinstar or something, you might think, oh, well, if they raise their commission by 1%, that's really going to hurt their business or something like that. But then when I would look at it and see how customers behaved, I'd say, oh, they're not paying much of any attention to how much is being taken out of uh, what they're actually getting when they bring these coins in. To them, the coins aren't really worth anything in a jar. And now suddenly they're, they're you know, have like $50 that they found. You know, that's really how they acted. Yeah. And also I could see, like I said, with the square footage, it takes up so little space in a supermarket. So like every supermarket would want one of these in there. You know, it would be easy to sign deals. Yeah. So that sort of thing is much easier to understand if you're there um, and and see it. But it's really things like customer behavior and some of the more psychological sorts of things, I guess. Um, the things that you would – that are important in terms of determining competition. Because as an outsider who doesn't know anything about business, you kind of fall back on sort of economic theory and stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, okay, so if they lower their prices, they'll sell more volume of this or whatever. But the truth is that the – you know, the price elasticity and all that kind of stuff is so very different depending on what product and what industry you're talking about and even what kinds of specific customers they cater to and stuff, you know? So it, it, and so there's just this assumption that, okay, well, if you can open supermarkets in most of the country, which is true, um, then you can open it anywhere. But that's not really true because if you lived in Northern New Jersey or Southern California or wherever you go, oh, wait, actually, it would be really hard to open up stores here. And uh, there are ways to find that out. Like if you look at supermarkets very carefully, you can see that there's very different returns on capital based on where their locations are and it has to do with inventory turns. So you could, if you were a really good financial analyst, figure out, oh, wait, if you have extremely densely populated areas where it's hard to open up new stores and the stores are really big, they're having really high inventory turns, which means they have low margins, but they actually have even higher returns on capital. Yeah. So like at a site level, they're really good businesses. But I found very few people who kind of figured that out on, on their own without having some experience with it to ground it. You know, mm-hmm. Just reading the 10K, they really miss those kinds of things. They don't understand why that's happening. Well, that's, I think, a very good overview of the benefits of kind of knowing the business at an integral level. Um, and I think it's certainly a, a good argument for people to recognize the businesses around them that they interact with on a daily basis, because I, I've found that as well. You know, you're online, you're reading about a company and maybe what other investors are talking about. And if you have been interacting with it, a lot of times they just seem like they have no idea what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I want to ask about next is kind of you've transitioned over the last few years from being kind of a private investor, you know, blogging to mm-hmm. now a professional portfolio manager managing individual accounts and you're going to soon be launching a hedge fund next year. So I just wanted yeah. to, you know, how has that process transitioned for you and has it changed your investing process? Has it, 
you know, how have you developed during that time period? Um, well, the big change is that I partnered with Andrew. So Andrew handles all the operational stuff um, so that I focus just on investing. So the the biggest hurdle to clear in terms of whether I would manage money for other people and stuff like that is all the other things besides um, picking stocks for the portfolio. And basically what I do is pick stocks. And so there's been less change than you would think, but that's only because I have a partner who does those sorts of things. So the average person listening to this who is thinking about doing that, if you don't have someone else to do all that stuff for you, then that's going to take up most of your time probably. So uh, it would be a huge change. And it, uh, there are reasons why we separate those two roles. Um, in part, uh, it's not just to save time for me to focus on one thing, but it's also to limit the amount of influence that I'm getting from other sorts of concerns about like what portfolio and stuff would be best at bringing in new clients and things rather than thinking about what portfolio I think will do best. Gotcha. Um, yeah, things like that. So um, – in terms of how it's changed my approach versus doing it myself to the actual investing, um, there are some things uh, that have, I guess, changed a little in the sense that um, we're, I'm a little bit more clear about how much we'll diversify. So I'm a very, very concentrated investor. And basically what we tell clients is that they'll own about five stocks about evenly. That's not exactly true um, because we haven't cut back something that went up a lot. So they own like 40% in that and something else we never got a lot of the shares we wanted. So that's gone down to like 10% or something. But, you know, uh, on average, the positions start at usually close to 20% and they own around five stocks. Um, that's not that different than how I would do it myself. I might be a little more likely to own three sometimes than five probably. Okay. But, um, but that is one difference. And then the really big difference to be honest is, uh, has to do with, um, uh, whether we can get enough shares of things. So our specialty is overlooked stocks. And a lot of times that means very, very illiquid stocks. And um, very illiquid stocks can be an issue getting all the shares that we want. And especially if they're very small companies too. So there have been some cases where that's difficult. So in previously, I'd never really had to think about that when investing my own money. Um, uh, I'm willing to, you know, put out bids and things for a very long period of time. And um, although I sell th things, it's not like I'm a buy and hold forever investor or something. I, d I don't ever worry about the fact that something's very illiquid for me getting in and out of it personally. Um, for clients, I don't worry about that either, getting in and out of it. But just the total volume of the amount of assets that we're managing versus what we're trying to put it into sometimes, there are some cases where it's part of the thinking about it is, okay, will we really be able to get these shares or not? Um, you know, for most cases, it hasn't been a problem. Um, and people are usually surprised by how many shares we can get of things that seem to have low volume. Uh, you usually don't know until you try. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there, there are some cases where uh, there's like – I can think of one case where I'd like to own the stock and maybe in a fund we will own it, but for managed accounts, it hasn't been possible. Um, there are big holders of the stock and they might sell and things like that, but in, there's not enough little um, shareholders who buy and sell each day. And so it becomes difficult to carry out in managed accounts where you have to um, be getting enough for every single account and we constantly have new money time. coming in, which yeah. needs to be served that way. Yeah. Yeah. No, so that's instead of just buying a giant block with your fund, you could distribute exactly. it across. Yeah, it. exactly. We, that's the kind of case where I'm fairly confident we could get a block or two at times, but 
I'm not confident at all that any day or even any week that we could get shares at all. That makes sense. Um, so on September 18th, you announced a, a Willow Oak Fund partnership mm-hmm. where you're going to be launching what a, a partnership, but I guess it, it sounds like a hedge fund structure. Uh, yeah, it's definitely a hedge fund structure. I mean, we're not going to be shorting anything or doing any hedging, but yeah, yeah it's a hedge fund structure, yeah. So um, can you just tell us a bit about, is that is the strategy that you implement in the hedge fund going to be identical to your current strategy, or is there going to be changes because the size of the fund might be higher than your current management assets or something along those yeah. lines? Yeah, uh, I would say the strategy will be, the positions won't be. Okay. Um, and that will mainly be because, uh, so I expect some of the positions to overlap. And if we can find, if we're having an easy time in the managed accounts getting the stocks that we want, then there'll be a significant amount of overlap. But the first things that we bought for the fund will probably be things that would have been difficult to get for the managed accounts. So, I mean, we've talked about that with clients and stuff. There's not a difference in strategy, but there is a difference in the actual um, structure of the two things. And there's just stuff that we can own in a, a fund that I don't feel we can own in managed accounts. Not that we can't own at all, but that we can't own on the scale that we want. We're not going to invest 1% of someone in something. Yeah. So we need to put 20% into things when we um, are talking about the managed accounts. And that can be difficult um, since people can add money at any time or take money out at any time. Um, and because we have a large number of clients relative to how much the assets are under management, we have a lot of small clients. So, um, that, that's the difference. Uh, like I was saying, basically it's that we can buy blocks of stock and stuff more easily in a fund structure. Um, especially that we can buy, uh, we can get a lot of stock at once and then never change the position. Um, which is, you were asking about how I invested personally and stuff. That's how I would invest personally. So um, that is one difference. There has been some changes to how I invest personally in, versus how I can invest for our managed accounts. I don't think there will be any difference between how I could invest personally and how I would invest in a fund. Because if a fund can buy stock one time and then never buy again, um, that's actually how I always invest myself. Gotcha. Um, I'm not out there always buying a little bit. I buy till the point that I reach um, the initial position I wanted, and then that's basically it. And that would really be what it's like in a fund. I mean, there may be additional buying eventually if assets, um, new partners come in, um, and the stock is still attractive. Yeah. But uh, if the stock has risen a lot and stuff, then it's unlikely that we would keep buying it. Whereas in the managed accounts, it is more likely that we would be doing that. That makes sense. So in terms of your investing process, there's many different factors or different things that people talk about. You know, how would you, uh, you mentioned being a very concentrated investor and that's quite clear with owning five stocks at 20% each, but how would you um, indicate your strategy and your process in terms of like value, momentum, quality? Do you use technical indicators? Do you have a large or small cap preference? I know you've said overlooked, um, Mm -hmm. How does that relate into those more commonly understood factors that people talk about? Okay. So in terms of the factors people talk about, it would be um, high quality, value, smaller biased, and um, illiquid, which also relates a lot to low beta, I guess people would say. I mean, uh, because of the way that beta works, um, anything we own will have a very low beta, which doesn't necessarily mean it'll have low volatility, which I was trying to explain in the quarterly letter, because beta is a measure of 
uh, volatility correlated with uh, an index, so general market volatility. It's not a measure of volatility simply on its own. Um, we may be as volatile as the market, but we won't be volatile in the same way the market is. Um, and so I get so to the extent that like low beta is a factor that people think of. Yeah, it's low beta, it's quality and its value, and it is small. Um, at the moment, I think we own things from a range of about thirty million in market cap to about two over two billion. But the over two billion is very unusual. Um, the actual float of it is much, much smaller. So uh, it's extremely illiquid for a two billion dollar company, although liquid enough that people can individuals won't have any trouble buying and selling it. But um, so even when we do own things that are very big, the actual float is usually very small. The actual amount of shares traded is extremely small usually. So uh, really illiquidity more than size, but illiquidity and size are so closely correlated that we would also be considered like small cap or micro cap. Gotcha. Um, so basically you're not using momentum or technical no. indication. No, definitely not. No. Yeah. Um, so in terms of time horizon, you mentioned that you would like to basically buy a stock once. You're not necessarily a hold forever investor, mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit about like what would cause you to sell? Because I know you've talked sure. briefly about how your previous selling has not helped your performance. So is that going to continue mm -hmm. now that you're managing you know, professional money? Yeah, that's a thing to be concerned about. So I've gone back and looked at uh, my performance and uh, where it came from and things like that. And it's easy for people to think, well, if they did better than the market or whatever, it must be because all the things that they did, the sorts of decisions that they made and stuff uh, added some value to it, right? So they're buying added some value, they're selling added some value, how they sized the positions, when they timed the purchases, all that stuff. Um, that's not always true, and in my case, it doesn't seem to be true much at all. It's uh, largely which stocks I picked um, and, to some extent, timing of when to buy them, basically, that they were cheap. So value and quality, um, not uh, anything having to do with when I got out of them and really not having to do with when I got out of them when switching into another stock. Um, so where I sold some things and then they performed badly afterwards was the only case in which – um, the sell decisions did add value. So selling something because I'd made a mistake did add value in some cases. But selling to switch into something that looked like a more attractive stock very rarely um, created much value at all. Um, and I could see that by you know comparing how the stocks that I bought did versus the stocks that I uh, sold to, to um, get the proceeds for to, to fund the new purchase. Um, so it the thing is, uh, I basically try to stay as close to 100% invest as possible with um, clients, more so than I did myself. So because I'm aware of the fact that the clients think that they're investing in the market with that money, uh, yeah. they have cash and stuff on their own, they're putting this amount in with the expectation that we invest in stocks. So personally, at times in the past, I've had 30 or 50% in cash, um, not intentionally, just like uh, a company will be bought out or something and I'll have nowhere new to put it. Um, I haven't really done that with um, clients. I mean, at the moment, accounts I manage have over twenty percent in cash, but that's something that happened just a few weeks ago. Yeah, and um, and is likely to be uh, they'll be nearly one hundred percent invested again within a couple of weeks. So it's you know it happens for a month or something. Okay, that makes sense. Um, it, yeah, I mean, in terms of how long I hold things, I don't think it's as long as people think because if I'm I'm trying to remember in the last. 10 years, if I use that example, I have owned things going back to 
the time I was a teenager and stuff for maybe longer than that. But if we just use the last 10 years, um, I've not owned a stock for more than a six to seven years. That's the longest holding period of any stock. Now it is true that I've like, I'm trying to think if I've ever owned a stock for less than a year in the last 10 years. I may never have owned a stock for less than a year. That might not be true. So, um, so it's possible that everything I've owned has been longer than, you know, a year and a half or something and less than six and a half years. Everything has fallen in that range. But so with that range you're talking, I mean, annual turnover could range somewhere between 20 to 30%, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I think theoretically a 20 to 30% turnover would be, uh, optimal probably in terms of what I've seen of funds and things like that. It's, um, I don't know that no turnover is all that helpful and I don't know how much it matters or your turnover is once it gets to a hundred percent or 50% or something like that. But it is true that having turnover less than 50%, it has some benefits to it. Yeah. So you don't think that the, like, let's say tax deferred benefits of, you know, not ever selling, you know, the good businesses you buy are worth it per se. Uh, well, I think there's a limit to that. Uh, so like if you look at Buffett or something in terms of things he invested in, I see big benefits for him in the first 10 years after that. I don't see the benefit because the amount of overvaluation and the things that he owned for more than 10 years gets too extreme versus the new things he could buy. Um, so there's a tax benefit to it. Sure. But it's just that things aren't staying cheap enough, long enough. Um, once a stock gets moving and gets popular, uh, it's, it's often not the case that it keeps outperforming decade after decade. There may be some examples, but I mean, I can think of any of his like best investments. They're heavily weighted to the first 10 years, uh, in terms of even when you calculate the annual returns out to today, even if he's owned it for 20 or 30 years, they're, the returns in the later decades aren't that amazing. So, um, it's possible a 10% turnover would still be helpful versus 20% or something. It's possible. I can't rule that out. But um, I, the big thing is like probably that people are turning over their portfolio once a year instead of once every, you know, um, three years or something like that. I would expect that's the biggest um, issue. Also, because like I said, what was true for me in terms of sell decisions is also, as far as I know, pretty true of other people. Uh, it's not uncommon that stocks that people sold outperform the stocks that they go on to buy immediately. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly uh, what they – you know, if you just look at the studies done solely on indexes like the S&P 500, that's true. You know, the stocks mm-hmm. that are dropped tend to outperform the stocks that are added. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, from just general studies that people might be aware of um, and can fact check. But um, so how do you how do you evaluate management of a company? You know, what are you looking for as your, in, you know, basically investment partner? What, what do you want the CEO and the management to to do to look like? How's their capital? Like, what are you looking at? Uh, basically you want them to be candid and you want them to have good capital allocation. Um, you know, everything else is pretty secondary to those first two things. Uh, the reasons why I would eliminate investing in something because of management almost always have to do with those two things. It's, it's hard for me to imagine cases where there's another reason why I would, uh, rule out an investment just because of management. It would be a lack of candor or a lack of, um, adequately, rational capital allocation. Um, so some sort of harmful thing in either of those two categories. Um, there are cases where management's really smart and does good things to add value beyond that. But those are the two kind of really important things. I mean, that's got to be 80 or 90% of what matters in management is just those two things. Yeah. Do you fo- put like executive compensation under like the capital allocation category? Like if it's 
extraordinarily high or is that just again something else that's secondary or uh it's secondary i wrote once about like ad agencies ad agencies have incredibly high um compensation to their ceos and to other senior people um and if you do the math on it uh they're very big companies, the biggest ad agency groups. So um, even with the incredibly high compensation, it's hard to come up with a case where you would rather your CEO be compensated less and make any sort of worse cap allocation decisions. They're allocating so much more capital that the returns on the capital each year are so much bigger, the difference between them than their own salary, that their own uh, options and everything taken together. Um, that you know, if they're being paid $30 million a year, that might sound horribly big to people, but they're running companies where a $30 million um, mistake is very common between the difference in CEOs. So you would probably want to have the overpaid CEO who makes better cap allocation decisions than the guy who's being paid a dollar makes dumb cap allocation decisions. Now, I think that's not that common. I can't think of many cases of people who take almost no salary and yet make bad cap allocation decisions. Usually people take almost no salary are um, founders or people who are very focused on their share performance and get their um, compensation basically through um, owning a lot of shares that then go up in value. But um, Aside from like small companies and some things like that, I don't have that many cases where the compensation is the problem. There are some small companies where it's a problem, but that's kind of a special case because what's happening in those cases is the um, the management is really treating the company as if it's a private company and paying themselves quite a lot. Um, so like I was thinking, I know of a company that's a microcap and management pays themselves like a $500,000 base salary and there's a couple different people in management and um, that's basically a way to extract the profits for themselves instead of having them go to um, shareholders and it also causes problems like um, they won't be willing to sell the company because the capitalized value of that $500,000 a year is so big compared to their ownership in the stock yeah. that um, even if there isn't change of control and all that sort of stuff actually in it, as long as they can um, make sure that they can stop negotiations to sell the company, they, basically they can make it known the company isn't really for sale as long as they're there. And they can um, make it so that you're not going to get the company sold at a higher price. Um, so th I can think of many microcaps where it's a problem. But I think of it a little differently, like they're basically using their compensation as a way to take out profits instead of letting them go to shareholders. Um, at huge companies, I don't know. That compensation never gets to levels where it would be a huge problem, except in cases where there's a lot of dilution. Yeah. And um, with dilution, I calculate it just based on the drag that I'll get from it. I don't calculate it in terms of um, the actual amount of compensation in dollar terms. That's not the issue that bothers me. It's how much um, – so if a, a company on average is going to issue, let's say, 1% to 2% of their um, shares outstanding, then I just factor in that I'm going to make 1% to 2% less a year in the stock on my investment in the stock than I would otherwise expect to. So you just need the and perspective return yeah. to be a little higher then. Yeah, you would need the return to be higher, absolutely. Okay. Um, and that's I've seen companies where I can kind of live with that. Like I said, some advertising things, some consulting things and technology and stuff, they do that. And it's an expectation in the industry that people are heavily compensated with equity. And it's not just the top management. It often goes down um, to the top 100 people or something in the company expect heavy equity compensation and low base um, salary. Mm -hmm. So it's something that you have to live with um, if you want to invest in those kinds of companies. And it is a drag on them. But if they're amazing businesses, then sometimes they can take a drag of 1% or 2%. Um, I've seen ones that are higher than that, though. Okay. <laughs> I've seen a company that probably would be um, 
10 or 11% returns to shareholders who I think will only get 6% or something because that's how much they're basically giving to insiders and also people who they acquire companies from and then co- and then uh, pay for in shares. Have you looked at uh, Salesforce at any point? I have not looked at Salesforce, no. Yeah, Salesforce is, uh, they make a lot of, um, they don't make gap profits basically because they uh, issue so many shares that it wipes out all the uh, the profit from the business, even though they're growing like 20% or 10, 15% a year forever. Uh, mm-hmm. So it makes the it makes it look very bad, and but then of course they add it back in adjusted earnings or whatever. So yeah, right, exactly. And I remember that they would that companies would do that even in the late 1990s, and uh, Intel and a couple other companies actually would buy back significant amounts of their stock to offset dilution. Yeah, and yet um, they're counting it like it's not really an expense, but then they're also using their cash to buy back their own stock, which they wouldn't be doing except to offset the dilution. So so it is. Um, <laughs> it's basically the same as if they just paid everybody in a lot of in a lot of cash. Yeah. Uh, so what, you know, I have a lot of, uh, you know, personal investors in my listening audience. So I guess what I'm curious is since you've kind of been in this transition, you know, what do you think the best advantage is that an individual investor has over a fund manager? Or do you think there is any? Uh, individuals have huge advantages. By far the biggest advantage is that you can invest in things that have almost no liquidity. That's a huge advantage. Um, and if you can, so if you can find something that you'd be willing to get into without the possibility that you can get out quickly, that's a tremendous advantage. Because even when I was talking about us having uh, a real focus on overlook stocks, specifically, all of our clients know from the moment before they've become a client that the strategy is illiquid stocks. Um, we still have a concern to manage accounts about how illiquid is too illiquid for things like adding new clients in and stuff like that. And that's a big reason for having uh, a fund instead. Um, so the ability to do some things that we'd have trouble doing with managed accounts and an individual really doesn't have that problem. Even if you have quite a lot of money to invest, um, you're aware of what your own liquidity needs are. Uh, so that's definitely the biggest one. Um, the other big one that you have is uh, you can just focus entirely on absolute return and not worry at all about relative returns. Um, I just wrote a quarterly letter and we start in the first sentence by saying what the S&P 500 did. We're not very correlated with the S&P 500. I don't expect us to be in the future. I don't think the S&P 500 determines much in the way of our returns, but it's expected that that's how we start. You know, every letter, that's how you talk to people about it is what you did with us versus what you could with the S&P 500. So, uh, yeah, I think the ability to invest in anything, no matter really how illiquid it is, if you, um, feel that, uh, you have liquidity overall that you need in your financial situation. Um, and then also just that you don't have to pay any attention to relative results. You can focus hundred percent on getting the best absolute returns for yourself over time. Makes sense. I mean, I, for an example, I think I just shared with your partner, Andrew, uh, a company that I've been buying that tr- basically doesn't trade for weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was able to accumulate a decent position by just posting a huge amount, but the market caps 4 million. Okay. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I assumed, I, I basically sent it to Andrew and I'm like, I don't know if y'all can buy this because it's probably too small maybe for you at this point. Right. Um, but I assume that's the sort of thing that you're talking about in terms of an advantage as an individual investor. Yeah. Well, well a really good rule of thumb uh, in terms of size is that no matter how concentrated you want to get, like I just said that we'd be willing to hold um, just five stocks. If you start to do the math, you can figure out that it's very hard for any kind of um, for any kind of fund, uh, any kind of investor, a professional investor, to basically invest in anything that is smaller than their assets under management. 
So if the company's market cap is less than the assets under management, um, that usually is going to rule it out for them. Yeah. So like you were talking about a $4 million um, company, uh, I would say that most, even if they're very willing to be concentrated, if someone is managing more than about $4 million, certainly more than $8 million, uh, that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, it's, you would have to own such a small percentage um, that you realize that those things don't really move the needle for your returns. And so you get to a point where you ignore certain um, entire uh, groups of small uh, stocks relative to how big your fund is or whatever. And as you grow, you start eliminating more and more of the total investable universe. So that's a big advantage that individuals have. Yeah, no, I think it's just, it's interesting because, you know, for this specific one, it's like the company's earning a million dollars a year. So just because mm-hmm. their market cap's at 4 million, you're like, well, that's a PE of four. Um, but if people can't invest in it, then it's an advantage that you have. So I just was trying to make sure I was on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. And the funny thing about that, of course, the you know the sad thing that way is that at a P of four, um, far fewer people can buy it than if it went to a normal P of say fifteen or sixteen or whatever, because then it would have presumably much more liquidity in terms exactly. of the market cap. Yeah, that hap- that's very common. And so then I can um, sell out when the it's best so liquid. <laughs> yes, exactly. You're usually going to get the best deal uh, when the fewest uh, amount of dollars can be traded in the stock. And then when more dollars are traded in the stock, when more people are getting in and out, there are going to be worse deals available. Yeah. So I want to switch gears for a second and kind of switch over to talking about a you know, specific example. Because um, mm-hmm. I think that kind of helps people understand your process when we talk specific stocks. And everyone likes talking stocks. So mm-hmm. I want to talk about NACO. So this is a okay. company that um, was really the one that keyed me the most to learning about you. Um, okay. And we're I think we both continue to own this stock, or at least I own a mm-hmm. considerable portion of this company. Um, and what keyed me on it was when you wrote an article that said you put 50% of your portfolio in it back in October 2017. Right. But yes, you reckon- that was my personal portfolio. So that was yes. before I started the managed accounts, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, but you told people that you thought everyone else should put 0% in it. And so Absolutely. I just want to wonder if you could like speak to, I guess, what interested you about this company and why you have that dichotomy, because um, I think it's a good example for uh, how you invest. Sure. So I had some familiarity with NACO. Uh, the name stands for North American Coal Company. Um, it had been a company that diversified into a few different um, industries, and it at one point owned um, Heister Yale, which had spun off. Um, and that's when I first looked at it, but, um, didn't do anything about it. And then a long time later, I learned that, um, through reading a blog post, that's something that they had once planned a while ago to do, which was to spin off a company called Hamilton beach brands, which makes some small appliances. You would see it in like Walmart and places like that. It'll be like crockpots and microwaves and things like that. Um, they were going to go ahead and actually do the spinoff. I think they'd been planning it. They thought about it like 10 years earlier or something, but scrapped it during the financial crisis, if I remember right. So um, I read that short blog post about it. Um, and it was at Clark Street Value, which is an excellent blog. And uh, a lot of the people probably in the comments there and just generally online stuff were really interested in Hamilton Beach brands, in large part probably because of reading like um, Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius and everything, getting really interested in spinoffs. And I follow spinoffs, but I follow them more as like sort of a situation that might create an interesting value in either the company that's being spun off or the company that's staying behind. Uh, this one would be really interesting because especially based on what people are saying about how they might value Hamilton Beach brands and new investors that I talk to, um, the Hamilton Beach brands would be a really big part of the value of the toll company when it 
broke into two, meaning that a lot of people weren't going to stay with NACA. Um, so I got the company's 10K, read it, and within five minutes, I was just really excited about um, NACA as a business. Um, it does contract mining for uh, lignite coal, which is low-grade coal used um, for power plants mainly. Um, and in all cases, it would be um, coal that is at the site where the uh, power plant is. So the power plant was built um, to be next to a coal deposit. And when I say next to, I mean like basically on top of. Um, and uh, the company doesn't take commodity risk by doing that. Instead, it uh, provides the coal at basically um, a pretty much a guaranteed cost to the the uh, customer. I mean, it's not exactly a guaranteed cost, but you get a cost plus a profit for every um, – either like BTU that you're providing or just tons of coal that you're providing. Um, and so it's a, a way to get fairly cheap coal, but very predictable uh, pricing for the utility customer. Um, and obviously a lot of coal plants were shutting down around this time that this spinoff happened and continue to shut down to today. Uh, I didn't know a lot about the industry. I had invested previously in a company called Babcock and Wilcox, mainly because I was interested, in, I mean entirely because I was interested in their nuclear business, but they do a lot of, um, they had built a lot of the boilers for, um, coal power plants in the U S a huge amount of them. And they did maintenance on them and things like that. So I had some familiarity with it, um, there as well. And then, um, the company's contracts ran for a long time, NACO's contracts. And so I think when I looked at it, their contracts would have run for like, I don't know, uh, the shortest might have been 13, 14 years till it ran out, and the longest would have been pretty close to 30 years still left on it. Um, they had heavy customer concentration, but they had a lot of free cash flow coming off of these things because there's one mine that they actually consolidate uh, and because they put up the capital for it, and that mine would have a poor return. But in all the other cases, the customer will put up the capital for it. So the, in theory, um, NACO owns the mine, but because of the way accounting rules work, you can't consolidate something that you can't provide the capital for to finance yourself. So um, if I put in a dollar in something and I own it and you put in the a million dollars, I can't consolidate that on my books. Um, so uh, basically these are contracts. Uh, they're just – I mean economically these are just contracts that run 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and they're pretty close to being like cost plus contracts. They're very similar to that. They're adjusted for inflation basically because they're adjusted for the costs um, at the mine. So, so, so it just, had a lot of, yeah, go ahead. So just to dive in on that. So to capture for, in case the, our audience didn't really capture the importance of these unconsolidated mines, they're basically mm -hmm. infinite return on capital for NACA. Absolutely. Yes. Because they have no capital. capital in it. It's absolutely infinite. And not only that, also you have to, I mean, they, they include this as exhibit 99 in their, um, 10 K, but, um, what you'll see is that they have audited returns for those actual unconsolidated mines. And it's clear that the mines pay out a hundred percent of their reported earnings directly to NACO as a cash dividend every year. I mean, it's like 99% one year, 101% the next year. I mean, it is targeted exactly at a hundred percent. So what we're saying is that the earnings of those mines convert into free cash flow at an incredibly high rate. And also just for, I mean, boring tax reasons, you get depletion on it since NACO technically is the one taking it out of the ground. They're the ones getting the depletion allowance and things like that. So, um, it's also, I mean, in terms of like EBITDA, some people are valuing this on EBITDA, for instance, which yeah. is earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, amortization. Well, you're not putting in capital in, whereas normally every other business you're comparing in terms of an EBITDA multiple has a lot of capital in it. So yeah. that's a cost to you. I mean, if you, you need a certain return on 
in EBITDA terms to justify putting in a dollar of capital. If you're not getting you know, a 20% EBITDA return or something, then maybe you shouldn't be doing this. Whereas NACO is not putting any capital in, so it should be worth a higher multiple of EBITDA versus someone else, um, you know, other things equal. And then the other thing that you have is you're paying less in taxes. And, you know, so it's converting to free cash flow at a higher rate. So when you do a comparison like EBITDA, I think that's very misleading because that's not what matters to an owner. What matters to an owner is how much free cash flow do I get and how much capital do I have to put into the business? And I would say that on those mines, NACO is getting a lot of free cash flow and not putting in any capital. So that was the exciting part. And that they were um, – that the customers basically would either shut down the plant or would use NACO as their supplier, both because there's a contract in place but also just because um, – uh, you're not going to move in coal by rail from across the country and stuff to replace coal that's available where you've built your power plant in the first place. So on an average year, they have 100% customer retention until they don't, basically. Absolutely, yep. Because um, I think, you know, when we talk about quality, you, you've talked a lot about quality in terms of, you know, your blog posts and your previous writings mm-hmm. that you look a lot at customer retention. And yes, that's so, true. So you consider NACO a high-quality company in that regard? Specifically talking about, like, let's say, the unconsolidated mines. Uh, yes. Uh, so I break up uh, durability as a separate issue from quality. Okay. They're incredibly high quality. They have infinite returns on capital, and they retain their customers. And not only are they, um, do they retain all the business in, in nominal dollars, but also they basically inflate each year. Um, so they're actually retaining. They're actually retaining their customers. Uh, not just retaining their customers, but they're retaining payments from customers in real terms on average over time at 100%. So uh, durability is a separate issue. But quality, you don't put up capital and you get free cash flow that grows at the rate of inflation each year. That's There's no higher quality than that. Yeah. So what was the value when you looked at it? So I, you've written before you bought it in the range originally around 32, 32.50. Yeah. It's it opened curr- around 22 probably. Yeah. I bought it around 32, yeah. And so it's currently trading around... 64. Well, I don't know what it's uh, going, but you're basically up around 100% in the last Mm -hmm. two years, but 90% of that is um, in the last year. Correct. Um, Yep. So I just kind of, how did you, can you talk about like how you valued it to start with? Sure. So um, I didn't give details on exactly what my appraisal would be, but yeah, but just like process. Yeah. No, I mean, but I mean, just so in general, it would have been, you know, obviously more than $50 a share and, you know, less than 65 or something like that, just for in terms of the coal uh, stuff on its own. Um, it's just to look at it in terms of the free cash flow yield that it would have and considering that as a real yield with the idea that you don't put in any capital. It's pretty simple in terms of valuing that because normally when you have to think, I don't do DCFs, but the sort of theoretically a DCF makes sense. But the problem with it is, um, all sorts of things about the assumptions that don't work and things like that. But there are other issues that have to do with um, the effects of inflation on it, how much capital you have to put into it, and then how likely you are to be wrong. So if you could find a business that you don't put capital into that um, produces real free cash flow and that um, is sort of at a uh, the same level of customer retention, then that's actually easy to value just as like a perpetual bond. And so that's the way of looking at it is basically that um, it's not quite mathematically that simple because, um, you know, it isn't perpetual. It does run out eventually. Um, the, the coal mines are likely to sh- – I mean the coal power plants are likely to shut down at some point. That's the most likely thing in my mind for why it would stop. 
Um, the actual reserves and stuff are pretty long there to the point that in terms of like a DCF, it wouldn't really matter. It's so far and years out. Um, they've only committed like half of the reserves they have, and that would last them, you know, probably half a century or something. So um, that's not the issue. So it, basically you just say, okay, well, if um, stocks generally can grow, if stocks generally can return, let's say 10% a year or worse, um, and you can buy something like this at, um, so for instance, let's say stocks, uh, probably stocks could maybe return 6% real in the 20th century or something like that. They might've been in that neighborhood. So, um, you would say, okay, well, if this is trading at a yield, that's 12% and it's real because they're gaining with inflation each year, then that's twice what it should be easily. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, the calculations that simple because they're not putting capital in. I, I want to make it clear that that's not normally how easy it is to do the calculation because you would normally need to know how much capital you can put back into the business and the returns on that capital. Uh, but as long as you're not putting any capital back into the business, then you don't need to know that. And you can just look at it as if it's a series of, of cash flows. Yeah. But that's, that's what, what you did. want, right? I mean, you've talked, I mean, another company that you've written about and that I have purchased at one point was Omnicom. You know, they basically yep. don't put capital in. So, I mean, it sounds yep. like this is a recurring theme that you look for is you want companies that don't have to spend their own money to grow. Yes. It's the best thing that you could possibly have i mean in general so like i gave an example of like what the returns in stocks would be over 100 years in the 20th century or something um if you had just focused on certain kinds of stocks i suspect they would be very different so for instance if you said okay i'm going to just buy an index of every service company no retailers no manufacturers um that has some amount of float or something like that where basically they have no tangible capital in the business i would expect the returns to could be significantly higher um, because the only way for it not to be higher would you you would need to constantly have them trading at very high PEs versus the market like that kind of um, basket of stocks would have to trade at 25 or higher sometimes significantly higher um, PEs versus like 15 on the market just to equalize the return that's an example of that is Omnicom um, throughout much of the time uh Ad agencies traded at multiples that were kind of similar um, to other businesses. Now, eventually, starting in like the 90s or so, that changed where they started trading at big premiums. Um, and then in other times in the 70s and stuff, they traded discounts. But there was a long period in there where if you had bought them at the same multiples as the market, you really outperformed in the ad agencies because people weren't really taking into account the fact that a normal business might um, grow you know, 5 or 6% a year and pay you a 3% dividend. Whereas a um, ad agency could grow five to six percent a year and pay you everything in dividends at the same time, and that's the huge difference: is you're not retaining half of your earnings, and like a manufacturer is retaining half of their earnings. So the PE is really misleading because that's not cash that you get back; that's cash that has to be reinvested to create the growth. You don't get both growth and the return. Yeah. So it's always better to have a business where you, as the shareholder, are not having some of your earnings reinvested in the business. That's always what you want to avoid. Yeah. So I have a question on NACO that I'm hoping mm -hmm. you've never been asked before. So we're going to see if you had to guess what percentage of your fellow shareholders in NACO own the hundred year history of NACO book, the one that's kind of their century <laughs> 1913 to 2013. I do. And I know you okay, do. You do. All right. Um, I think <laughs> I, I would hope that some of the family does who owns the, okay, so let's uh, exclude the, the family the because shares. Yeah. they probably got uh, excluding gifts. the family. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it would be, it would be single digits. It would be very low yeah, single digits, single I'm digits. sure. I mean, but do you think that's the sort of thing that, okay, you know, the company produces a book basically saying, hey, here's our 100-year history. 
Mm-hmm. They link to it on their website. So it's obvious that I mean, if you're on the investor page, you can't miss it. Right. So does it seem like you as an obvious thing for an investor to at least, hey, I'm going to put, you know, five, six figures in a company or four figures in a company. I, I can buy a $20, $40 book or whatever it is to learn right. about it first. <laughs> yeah, I would think so that people would all buy that. Um, but I don't think people do. Yeah. I mean, I talked a little bit about this on a podcast with Andrew once where I was like, you know, um, occasionally I'll talk to someone who, um, I mean, the examples I gave were some really obvious ones, but I talked to people who um, were interested in investing in DreamWorks animation or had invested in it and had never seen a DreamWorks movie. Whereas I just said, well, I'm going to see all their movies to get an idea for it. Like, are they good? Um, yeah. So, I mean, because you need to, you need to get an idea that it's like uh, Buffett allegedly went and saw um, Mary Poppins, uh, you know, when he was researching Disney that way. But I also said that, I mean, I knew people who talked about, uh, would talk to me about Cheesecake Factory because that's the stock I talked about. And they had an even at Cheesecake Factory. So, I mean, those aren't big investments of time and money uh, yeah. to do those things, to, to learn a little bit about it. Now, I don't know if they really help that much. I mean, in the case yeah. of that NACO book, that's a lot of um, uh, background on the company that you get from it. So a book is something that's totally different uh, and potentially a lot more valuable than, than those sorts of things. But even then, you know, sampling the company's product is a pretty normal thing to do. Um, I mean, even when I mentioned NACO and stuff, you know, you always look at satellite images of all the places that they talk about because NACO tells you where each mine is and everything just to get an idea um, of what they mean and stuff like that. Because, you know, what experience do you have with um, surface mining and stuff to have an idea of the scale of these things or how close they might be to other things and whether they're moving things with what kind of equipment and whether they're using rail and sort of those sorts of things on site. You might not know all of that from the 10K without seeing those sorts of things. And it takes a few minutes to look that stuff up. Yeah. Um so yeah, just wanted to reiterate about NACO here real quick. Um, that you know this stock's up basically a hundred percent in the last year, um, yeah. or at least it was earlier this week when we we're recording uh, here at okay. the beginning of October. Um, and it's probably because I people discovered. It. I mean, sometimes you have no real reason, right? I mean, this thing was trading for single digit PE, and then it its earnings grew fifty percent. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I have some ideas, to be honest. I uh, I think there are three reasons, is my best guess. Um, I think that there uh, that for a long time there had been a shareholder who bought around the time the spinoff had been selling. And um, I think that they basically stopped selling. Um, I won't get into <laughs> why that is and, and who that is and what, but I think that that was obvious in the volume looking at it that um, – in the times when the stock has gone up, I don't know that there's necessarily a huge amount more demand on the buying for it, but there's an absence of uh, people being willing to sell. Um, so that's just a technical reason for why it has gone up. And then there are just two events, I think, that really happened, which is if you look at the increase in the price, it was really concentrated around the time that um, they uh, put out a quarter that had very good royalties for the first time that they put out a quarter that had huge royalties from natural gas. And uh, then the other time, I think, is when they announced the the lithium mine. Uh, I think that also uh, was a bit of news. So I think there's two bits of news plus um, that you had since it's a fairly illiquid stock for something on the New York Stock Exchange. Um, and then just also a seller that finally had sold all their shares. I think that those are the three factors probably would be my guess. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, we certainly never really know what's causing these things, but this is by no means a small company. You know, it's 440 million mm-hmm. market cap, I think. I'm just estimating off of what I can see on Yahoo. Yeah. So take it with a grain of salt, but it's a big company. Oh, yeah, it's a big company. And actually, it's a huge company when you think about the actual amount of mining that they do and all that because of the way that it's reported through um, not being consolidated. 
Um, they're actually a very big miner, but um, I'd say there were plenty of days, months, even on average, where it traded ten thousand shares yeah. um, in a day, and you know, ten thousand shares on a stock that was whatever in the forty or fifty dollar range at that time. You know, you're talking about not a huge amount of trading for a stock that's um, that's on the New York Stock Exchange or that is uh, you know multi hundred million dollar uh, company. Yeah. yeah. So if we have a, a little bit of time, do you still have some? some time or we got to close up yeah here. no no no. i don't have any time constraints um so i want to talk about uh corelia tobacco okay so, so corelia is a company that you, you put out a focus compounding gazette uh, i think that's at yes. focuscompoundinggazette.com and it's kind of a, you put out a 10 stock watch list for free and mm-hmm. you had corelia on that watch list for two straight months at number one so that's correct um how is it that a company is on your watch list at number one for two months and yet you don't write it up during that whole time. You know, what stop? Is it the liquidity? I mean, what, what's... There's two issues with that one. There's two issues. Uh, two or three issues. So three issues are one, I like to write up things that might one day I buy and uh, we're not going to buy it because of uh, liquidity issues. Two, then there's just liquidity issues in this one that are so extreme that some uh, members and stuff will be annoyed that we wrote up something that there's no way they can get. Um, especially being on a Greek exchange that also turns off a lot of people. Unfortunately, uh, I know that writing up things on foreign exchanges and stuff, especially ones that they haven't bought on before makes it much less likely that they will buy. So they just don't feel like it's as good an idea that way. And the number one is it's a tobacco company. And so large numbers of people won't want to read about tobacco company no matter what, because for ethical reasons, they don't invest in tobacco. So those are the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, but. So really the next question though is just like what's attractive about this company? Because I mean you, you mentioned in one podcast, I think, that um on your focus compounding podcast that you know basically they've returned something like twenty percent annual returns over the last thirty years. That's my best um, guess. I don't have a, any database like academics and stuff would have, and I don't know that anyone does for Greek stocks. It's hard stocks, to get data on the Greek yeah, stocks. Yeah, yeah. But um, I could estimate that they would have to do something like that anyway just by looking at their numbers. I mean, you can do both of those as a check. You can look at the actual stock returns, and then you can say, well, unless they did something very strange, I can tell what the returns in the business were for a lot of these years. So they had to have had something like that. And also you can estimate from some – they give some numbers about – I've seen some things translated by a computer, so they could be wrong, about what the family might be worth and stuff. I don't see how you could get any of those numbers without incredibly high returns in the stock for a very long period of time, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I actually, after you put this on the list, mm-hmm. I bought the stock because okay. I don't have the liquidity constraints that you have. Right. Um, but it it seemed like a no-brainer, basically. Okay. When you, at least, I, I mean, I, I'd be interested in your feedback, but it's, it's like, okay, tobacco is the number one performing industry over the last hundred years. Yep. Um, when you think about, you know, Philip Morris, Altria, the big mm-hmm. companies and they're trading at well now they're trading lower because of the uh, vaping scandal right but generally they'll trade has at, nothing to do with that yeah has I mean, nothing to do with a few companies that has no uh, exposure to anything other than cigarettes yeah and and the the company's traded down a little bit but basically because of low liquidity it's not moved a right. ton but it was mm-hmm. already in single digit pe like a nine or something and then they have cash for 30 percent right. of their stock and mm-hmm. and then they're growing 20, 25% a year, 15. I mean, depending upon the earnings. And by volume, I think much faster than other cigarette companies. Yeah. Yeah. They're growing. I mean, so like you look and you compare it to the company that most people would know about if they think of tobacco and it might be, uh, Altria here in the United States. So only in the United States, their volume declines are 5% a year, 3% a year, something Mm -hmm. like that. And then they raise prices above that so that they can keep growing. This is a company that's growing volume. They're growing Mm -hmm. prices. Um, and they're growing, countries that they're in 
Yeah. And they trade for less than 10 times cash flow and they have a bunch of cash. I, I mean, and in terms of customer retention, it's very good. You know, if we yeah get beside that. So I don't know. I think it's interesting because, you know, to go back to what you said earlier, it's an advantage that an individual investor might have. Yeah, I mean, it's a huge advantage because if you think about it, what if, if the family decide we want to sell the company tomorrow, uh, the bids they're going to get are a lot higher than the stock price. What's funny about the um, uh, Corellia is, you know, also it's traded at much lower levels in the past in terms of its price to yeah. some of those price metrics. It's been much cheaper. In fact, I've <laughs> I know like two people who've owned it and sold it at prices more like today. Because they're like, well, it's not as cheap as when I bought into it, you know. Um, you know, I bought it when it was incredibly cheap, and now it's 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 very cheap. But you know, uh, and that happens to people a lot. If something goes up 100 percent or whatever, they sell it regardless of the fact it may still be very cheap. Um, yeah, and, and what's interesting about that stock is while that's somewhat cheap for a stock, like if you find a super illiquid stock and it has like a P, like you're talking about, you go, okay, that's low, but it's illiquid or whatever. But no. Um, uh, tobacco companies around the world have EVD, EBITDAs, and things like that anywhere near that low. They, they have very high ones. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. But we wrote up something on the site on uh, – someone else wrote up something on the site, but I, I talked a lot of – I've talked a lot about it. Um, that was a uh, amusement uh, aquarium operator. So similar to amusement parks and things like that are the closest peers. And um, same sort of thing in that it had inc- – incredibly low valuation versus all of its peers but the reason for that is because it's incredibly illiquid and may also have to do with where it is though i don't think that's as likely it's a singapore company that has aquariums in china um i think most likely it's just incredibly low float which yeah. is the case with this one the the company uh, the family here owns really close to 100 percent of the stock certainly way over 90 and, and probably closer to like 99 or something i counted incredible number. five people own 95 percent of it yeah, and that's the family. Yeah, I mean, um, so but as I think I mentioned on a podcast, from my understanding again of a machine translating Greek for me, uh, the family does not all see eye to eye. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, outsiders aren't going to have any influence on the stock, but it's possible that uh, you know uh, almost fifty percent is owned by members of the family that feel one way, and almost fifty percent by members of the family that feel the other way. But should that should the fact that like you don't have any influence matter to your investing decisions? I mean, because I mean, most of us, I mean, I would say almost everyone, unless you're you're really moving money around, has no influence on the business. So, oh, yeah, no, I don't think it's the influence on the business at all. That's why people don't um, buy something like this. I think it's that they say, oh, they're not going to sell out. Yeah. I think that that's the thing. Like people will say, oh, why doesn't it stay cheap forever? Yeah. I mean, it could. I mean, a, a stock with almost no float, if a family doesn't want to sell it, can stay cheap, except to the extent it pays out dividends and stuff like that. Um, it's not like this company has piled up cash to the point where it has many, many times its market cap and cash or something like that where you've no. seen some companies. I mean, um, it, it doesn't make a huge – I don't think it makes a huge difference in terms of the valuation that I see with it. I've said that before with talking to people about illiquid stocks. If your return is expected to be from dividends and things like that that you get over a very long period of time, so not a asset sale that happens now. Um, it really doesn't matter if it's something that has a very high liquidity or very low. I mean, the example I'll give is I, I owned a company, just sold it in the manager accounts this last month or so, Computer Services. Yeah. Computer Services is a core processor um, that has always traded at a discount to other core processors like Jack Henry um, that are listed in major on major exchanges and trade in indexes and things like that. The company has been around since similar to those kinds of companies a long time. It's been paid dividends and things for 50 years or something. Um 
the return in all those stocks generally is not from a buyout or something. It's just from that they grow earnings. The PE stays the same uh, over time. So you get uh, capital gains from that if you ever decide to sell out. And you get dividends all the time. Yeah. And that's what you get in all of them. But people don't like the illiquid one, the unlisted one, even though you'll get more dividends and stuff because if they pay out the same payout ratio or whatever on a lower stock price, then you've got a higher yield. Um, and so – but it's the same sort of thing. So, I mean, even now when I sold out of that company, I sold out 25 times earnings or something. I still think some of their peers now are trading at closer to 40 times earnings. Yeah. No, so it's a good it, company. Yeah. And, and so I think Corelli is similar to that where um, it's – it even when it's – goes up a lot, even after if it's gone up a lot. Um, it still trades at a major discount to other tobacco companies, but people don't want to own it because they don't see a catalyst. Um, I think there are some other particular things with Corellia, which are um, people don't like largely family controlled and people are worried about corruption and things like that in Greece. Yeah. Um, I think if you read the report and you look at as much as you can of the history of the company and stuff, I would be much less concerned with them than a lot of Greek companies. Yeah. Um, they actually do a, the best that I think they can reasonably do to avoid risks that are specific to the Greek government. Um, like, you know, in terms of how they hold their cash in what ways and where and stuff like that. That's kind of the most you can expect of a company that is a Greek company to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and sure, there's some legislative risk in whatever in a country like Greece that, yes, they can put huge um, tax increases on stuff there. Um, and there've already been things like that, that have hurt them over time and, you know, but they operate in a lot of different places. Um, I don't think that's a great reason for it. And actually companies, tobacco companies and other things in all sorts of other countries that have at least as much risk as Greece, um, would trade at higher prices, uh, as long as they had the liquidity. So I think it's a total lack of liquidity. Yeah. yeah. I think that's what worries people. But like you said, what's funny about that is of course, um, if anything bad happens in an industry, <laughs> the funny thing is um, people can only sell the stocks that they know they can sell now. Yeah. So what they sell is Philip Morris. What goes down 40% you know, right away <laughs> is the stocks that are very easy to sell. And what uh, unfortunately I found many times, um, I mean fortunately if you own it already, but unfortunately if you're looking for an opportunity to buy into an illiquid stock, it will not react that heavily to macroeconomic stuff. Yeah. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to buy this UK stock because of Brexit or whatever, if it's a huge company, you might be able to. But if it's something super illiquid, you're going to be surprised how it is not going to react to huge things like that. Yeah. Because that's not something that you know hedge funds and institutional investors and even individual investors, it's not the easiest thing for them to sell. So that's not going to be the first thing they sell. They're going to sell the stuff that they can get rid of today. No, I, I just think it's, it's really interesting because you have a you – know, there's – Basic, you know, if we if we ignore for a second the the moral concerns, and there's definitely real mm -hmm. concerns with tobacco companies. Um, if you, there's no question amongst you know professional investing community, the quality of the earnings and the reliability of earnings for tobacco companies worldwide, and yet most people can't buy the company. And if you hold it and it stays at 10 PE, but they're growing earnings greater than 15 percent for basically the next 20 years, you're going to not do worse than about 15% a year. Yeah. And I'll give you another one that's also in tobacco, just to illustrate, it's sort of related to some things like that, that to illustrate the liquidity thing and, and some other factors, I think too. Um, there's a company in the U S called uh, turning point brands. Uh, 
which is a fairly liquid stock and stuff. It's not a huge company or whatever, but it, um, it basically it's um, it is big in vaping, which is a problem and why the stock's down a lot recently. But that's a new thing for them. Whereas the things that have produced all the profit for them are uh, zigzag, which is rolling paper for marijuana. Basically, they call it cigarette rolling paper, or whatever. But that's not what it's used for. And um, Stoker's, which is uh, chewing tobacco, it's big in uh, tubs, so it's a big value brand chewing uh, tobacco. Um, and uh, that company is, I guess, sl- fifty to fifty-one percent owned, slightly majority owned by another listed company called Standard Diversified. Now. Yeah. Standard Diversified, you can look through and see that almost all the assets of Standard Diversified is simply their ownership in, in Turning Point brands. Um, however, as far as I can tell, uh, it's always traded at a discount, uh, uh, Standard Diversified, to its look-through ownership of Turning Point brands. And even in something like recently with the vaping concerns, actually Standard Diversified stock dropped more than Turning Point brand stock did. So um, you have a sometimes a pretty big difference. So like if, say, Turning Point trades at 10 times EBITDA or something, you can sometimes buy it by buying Standard Diversified at what's a look-through of 7 times EBITDA or something like that. And if you talk to people about that, some people are aware of the fact that Standard Diversified is basically Turning Point. But they, if their thing is that they really want to own, uh, like say, something related to marijuana or vaping or whatever, if they want that – there's a certain amount of that they expect other people to pay more for it, and they expect the crowd to pay more for a turning point in a month or two or whatever um, on good news in that area than they do for other people to bet on standard diversified. So they kind of count on selling out to other people if they expect it to be about sentiment in that industry. They really want to own something that has that a name in it that people recognize that way or that's known to be a way to bet on that kind of thing. It's like um, if someone wanted to buy a lot of natural gas, they wouldn't buy NACO even though now a lot of their earnings are coming from natural gas. Yeah, it's basically – They'd be 50%. reluctant to do it because they're like, well, but are other people going to discover that it's all you know, natural gas is uh, a big part of their earnings and stuff? And you know, what if they don't? That sort of thing, yeah. But I mean so but that's generally um, – I mean I would characterize that as speculation. Yeah. No, I agree. But I think that that's – speculation I think also even in something like Corelli we're talking about it. I think there's a speculative component of the lack of there being speculation yeah. because pe- people um, want a stock that they think, well, what if it gets bought out next year? What if it goes up a lot next year? They're worried in something like Corellia. I don't see how this goes up 100% in a year or two or whatever. I mean, it might. It can it that, might. that kind of thing won't. can happen. Yeah. I mean, NACO went up a lot. And did you necessarily see that you know, that would happen in that short a period of time? But they like a catalyst. Yeah. And so they love it when you say, okay, so um, the family's willing to sell out or there isn't a controlling shareholder. So, you know, there can be an activist and so they can do all those things. It's not that they want to influence it, but it is that they think that having a stock open to influence from others can put it in play and can make things happen faster. Like a lot of tickets. Yeah. Whereas when you think about it, if you want to own a tobacco company, um, why would you want that to be uh, to for it to be sold quickly and stuff? You'd want to be in it for the long term if you really believed in the it uh, its economics. And certainly, yeah. you would in previous decades. It's been a better place to be invested than in other industries. So if it's getting really high returns on its uh, equity and all those things, then you should want to be a long term investor. I totally understand the desire for a catalyst or something if you're buying a bunch of land or uh, whatever that you're buying this asset play. But if you're buying something that has a lot of free cash flow that grows over time and all that, there's no reason to. Um, be fo- so focused on not buying something 
that doesn't have an immediate catalyst to the point that you allow it to trade at a low price and you won't buy it, you know? Yeah. Um, Something with a catalyst that's twice as expensive just isn't worth it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just like, you know, if you had the opportunity to buy a company like this, let's pretend it's not Corellia because, you know, it's blocked up, but, you know, you were able to buy 10% of a company that you knew you could never get out of, but it had Mm -hmm. the characteristics, you know, trading less than 10 times earnings and it's going to grow 15% for 40 years. I mean, that's attractive. That, I mean... Mm -hmm. You know, there's no reason you could buy that and you're going to make all of your fun partners incredibly rich. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually in terms of things that like um, we think about for liquidity stuff, actually a really big thing we think about is how long are we willing to be in this stock? Yeah, because we're willing to buy something that's more and more illiquid if we're more sure of how long we'd be willing to own it. The less sure we are of how long we want to own this thing, really, like say it is an asset play or something like that, then the much less accepting we are of illiquidity. Because this is one of the first things that we want to sell or whatever. But if this is something that we want to own for years and years, if the price doesn't get crazy, then we're totally comfortable uh, stretching the limits in terms of how illiquid it could be and we could still get our shares. You know, um, it, you're just not worried about getting out of a good business. You're worried about getting out of a bad business. Yeah. So, um, Neckar, you just mm-hmm. uh, mentioned this in your quarterly um, letter. Yeah, and it's trading for less than net cash, or it's around there. Um, yeah, approximately. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but you also talked about how you you've done poorly with asset plays recently, and so in my yeah. brief look over at Neckar, how is Neckar not just another asset play? Because you know it seems like a very cyclical business. I, yes, very very cyclical. So I mean, there's a chance that you know the business you know might just break even over the next few years. I'm not saying that's a guarantee. So oh, it could it could happen, especially with the corporate costs that they have. I mean, it won't in the next few years because they have a four year backlog. But a, yeah. but on a cash basis, ignoring the fact that they'll have they'll have to work through the backlog. Yes, I agree with you. Yeah. So I mean, I guess if you know there's. Not a clear catalyst with Netcard, but is this a sort of company that you buy because it's just it's so cheap? I mean, companies shouldn't trade for an EV of zero. Um. Well, it, so it's a weird example for me because on the one hand, I would say it's incredibly high quality business. Okay. And yet, weirdly, it's an incredibly cyclical business, and those two almost never go together. Uh, but here's the deal: they have a negative working capital cycle. Oh, okay. So while you're saying that they have three uh, NOK in cash, basically the the stock as we're talking is around three um, Norwegian kroner. So people say that that's a net cash. I did warn in the quarterly letter. On the one hand, it's net cash, absolutely. But on the other hand, the way that I think the company probably thinks about it is not that that's all their cash because those are customers who've paid them. Now the customers aren't supposed to get the deposits back, so it is cash that they've been given, and an insurance company would treat it as their cash. It's float. But um, but like, for instance, I own a stock. Uh, I own very little of it. But OTC Markets, they have float because it's a subscription-based thing where you pay in advance. Historically, the company hasn't like used that float to buy back their stock or something. They just sit with that float on their balance sheet. Um, and they earn like you know short-term deposit-type um, interest on it. Um, and I suspect that's what will happen here with um, Necker. Now, Necker is a combination of uh, – it actually has a significant amount of true net cash. I don't know what the exact difference between the two are. But I don't think you could argue that the float is more than like a third or something of all that cash that you see. So they also just have cash that they've earned. But um, yeah, it sometimes had very, very high returns on capital. From what I can gather, it sometimes had 50% or more returns on capital um, as a business unit. Um, I, I mean, I, I ha- I've talked to some people in Norway and someone brought this idea to me from Norway that they were excited about. They were able to get me business unit level um, stuff from the company going back to the 90s. 
Um, and I really like the economics at the Synchrolift business unit yeah. um, level of it. Now, the problem, of course, is that this company was 10 times larger and has now sold off 90% of its uh, business in a merger, leaving it with this. What well, The business they left it with, I like a lot. It, it is super cyclical, but I really do like it a lot. Um, but you now have like corporate costs on top of that, and it is always a question of whether they'll get rid of corporate costs enough or that they'll invest in other things, which is what they've talked about doing. Um, I mentioned there they're getting into salmon farming, and um, they also did buy a little business, um, not very big acquisition, though, that does some um, uh, – it's called IntelliLift. It, it um, is a little more – technology driven but similar to what they do now except so like so you'd be lifting things and stuff for offshore stuff like um uh like uh, oil and gas and also um wind farms and stuff might use it things like that um but that's not that different than what the company does where they basically do ship lifting and moving inside a, a um a shipyard um okay. basically what the sink lift what the business is is it's an alternative to dry docking a ship so um, you can use it uh, to have space and stuff in a shipyard and to move things around to optimize certain things. I think it's an interesting product that way. Um, and I think they have a really big position in it because I think that um, it has very, very low penetration worldwide compared to like using a dry dock. Um, so they're sort of – I said like I use the term hidden champion for them because that's a book that I love, uh, Hidden Champions, um, where you have this tiny company that is a leader in this very, very niche thing that they do. Um, the other thing I like, which they mentioned in the presentation, um, and uh, is that, so the, at the business um, unit level, their EBITDA margins might be around 10% or something, give or take, you know, a few percent in either direction. But they actually aren't doing the servicing for this business. So almost all of it is the original equipment. And... So while that's a, they're already a very good business, the truth is that normally um, doing parts and service maintenance work and stuff for an engineering type thing like this is usually the much better part of the business than providing the equipment in the first place. So if they do ever get to convert more of that over to them providing the actual servicing on it, uh, that would also be good too. So, And I was kind of hoping that they would be focused on this business now. We'll see if that happens. They might be focused on diversifying a lot. Um, but I kind of – this is sort of the – thing inside the old company that I think was really great and I didn't have any interest in any of the stuff they sold off. So oh, that's good. Yeah. I mean I, I did once invest I mean I did once write up. Unfortunately I did not invest in it. Um but we did talk about it on the podcast um a company called Breeze Eastern, which oh, yeah. has a simpler yeah, yeah. A, a similar history to this company in that it started out as a helicopter hoist business, uh rescue hoist. Um for uh, and then it bought up a lot of stuff. Breeze Eastern got itself in trouble, then sold off all the stuff and came back to basically being Breeze Eastern again. Well, this company, if you look at it, which was called TTS Group, um, it basically had a core of like Synchrolift um, 25 or so years ago, something like that, and then it grew into this big thing from that of a basically mini conglomerate kind of thing, all related to uh, ship stuff and things related to that. But still a sort of conglomerate type thing. And then it's now shed all of that off and it's back to being this um, core business again. And, and so I like the business unit a lot. But no, I don't know about the capital allocation and what we're going to see from that. And I don't know about the new things that they're going to do. And I'm not sure they're going to slim down corporate costs enough to make it make a lot of sense. Because this is a really small company in terms of sales and stuff considering that they're public and everything. So that stuff's tough. 
Yeah. Uh, so I don't have answers on like that. Those to me are the risks are they could do capital allocation. I don't like and they, their corporate costs could just eat up a lot of what this business does. But yeah, if you can make like a private offer for just this business, I think it's worth quite a bit more than the market cap. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, one quick uh, last company I want to talk about is Truxton Trust. Okay, sure. Um, you wrote this up, I think, in the middle of July. And I think mm-hmm. it's interesting because it's a bank basically. Yes. Um, yep. And they're for all intents and purposes have a single branch. So it's quite Correct. different from the banks people know about. Yes. Um, and you wrote it up as that it's growing 10% a year and trading at a PE of 14, which on the surface is quite attractive. Um, but historically they've been growing quite faster than that. At least if you'd look at earnings per share, they're in like the 15. Yeah. I, under, range. I mean, I underestimate that I 10% is like what their loans had grown at or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Their revenue or something. Balance sheet things. Actual earnings per share grew a lot faster because they're, um, enjoying economies of scale as yeah. many small banks do. Yeah. So what I found interesting when I read up about this company was that they, you know, if you look at a, a bank, they're, they're going to make loans to, to earn money mm-hmm. and their loan provision rate is 0%. And mm-hmm. that's not normal, yeah. right? <laughs> Yeah, so so I should explain that. Yeah, and uh, for full disclosure here, just before I started recording this with you, my uh, partner Andrew had just spoken to their CFO. Okay. So um, I so there's some stuff from that that I know now that I didn't know before the write up, but it's not important at all. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I know some things that I probably guessed before is basically what I'm saying. Um, so it's a private bank. And and someone helped me out with this too. I don't know a lot about European banking, and so they were able to help me out by giving me um, uh, information filed with regulators and stuff for UK private banks because I needed to know more about private banking to understand the loan losses that I was seeing here. Like you said, they're basically not having loan losses. Um, they haven't had loan losses. In fact, when they did provision, I believe they had said that they just provisioned on the basis of the historical experience of other banks in their area instead of actually what they thought they were going to lose because they don't have sufficient um, actual losses of their own to uh, incorporate into a model. Um, I think they said that one time, but I can't remember in what I read that. Um, So, yeah, so private banking is very different. Um, And here's the deal. Um, I think that... Some of the things they've lent against have gone badly, and yet because the borrower is quite rich and quite liquid, um, they've been able to recover uh, because of things that have happened. So I'll give you an example. They, they are a trust uh, operation that's very big for it, and so a lot of the people they'd be lending to have a trust with the bank, uh, or and they also would know about all sorts of things about their clients' um, uh, financial situation including things like do they have whole life insurance and things like that. And things like that are probably pledged in many cases in addition to other stuff when they're making a loan. So they might be lending against, say, artwork or something, and they may have miscalculated badly in terms of what that collateral ends up actually being worth. But because of other liquid things that the client has, uh, that the borrower has, but the borrower is their client also, um, then uh, I think they're able to recover it. Um in some other cases, it may also be the attitude of the bank because, like I said, my partner did just talk to the CFO and I know in one case they did something with a house that they took over that allowed them to make a small profit or I don't know if it was small, but a profit on it. But I know that a bigger bank wouldn't have done what they did 
uh, a bigger bank would have wanted to get it off the books right away instead of doing what they did. So uh, they do give special mention on loans and things. So I can see where they have listed that a loan has some issues with it and stuff. Yeah. And yet then it goes back into um, performing eventually and stuff. So like they, they've had loans that um, continue to pay interest, but that they warned had a problem with them, which probably either means that they know that the borrower was having financial problems, or in some cases may have just been that they were very aware that the collateral wasn't sufficient anymore, um, but the borrower was still making payments on it. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So basically, um, from what I can gather, some, there's some private banks that have extremely low loan losses to the point of virtually no loan losses, and it's because of who they're lending to. Um, so, but that could be more extreme than the case with Truxton. I don't know enough about it to like say for sure, but I do know that that's the case, uh, in the UK with some of them. If you broke out some private banks in the UK versus their actual parent company that holds them, um, their lending losses would be incredibly low. Um, and that's because, uh, they service basically ultra, uh, high net worth people. Um, Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess it was just, you know, in terms of we talked about NACO, about how, you know, in a few minutes you leap on something, you're like, that's different, you know, because yes. I have experience owning banks, you know, I, I, I've owned Frost um, yep. and some other banks as well. And when you think about the return that you're going to receive in terms of your return on equity, it's basically your return on assets minus the cost of assets minus your, you know, bad loan rate. Um, mm-hmm. And so if you have a bad loan rate of zero, well, that's a nice um, advantage. I guess, in terms of banking, in terms of the returns you can receive. Yeah. And and so, I mean, just to make kind of simple this way is that I'd say in general in banking, the way that you can have extremely low loan losses is if you would be lending a small amount of the liquid assets of the borrower, which is very rare. So I think that's probably what Truxton's doing. So um, what I mean is like uh, if we take the average um, mortgage loan that's being made for the general public and stuff, um, households have very, very little liquid assets. So their only cash flow is from their what's left over after they have their um, uh, they, they pay their monthly expenses from the the wages that they have. So if they were to lose their job, then they'd have no cash flow and they'd have no liquidity. And then your collateral is just the value of the home. Um, the, the banks that I've seen in the past and even just from learning about things of how banking worked in past centuries and stuff that have been extremely safe to the point of having very, very low losses are all things that invested, uh, that, um, lend it, that, that loaned money to, um, people especially, but, uh, also businesses that had extremely high liquidity positions versus, the um, amount of borrowing that they were doing. The two things that are a risk usually are that um, you just don't have sufficient asset protection and, and, and income and things like that, which people are probably very aware of with banks. But the thing they might be less aware of is just lending against illiquid stuff can be ha- a lot harder. So if all Truxton was doing is lending to someone who has a $3 million home or something, that's a lot riskier than lending to someone who has a $3 million home and a $10 million stock portfolio. Yeah. And they might. And I don't know that they don't. Yeah. You know, in cases like that. And that may be why you see that they didn't have a loss on something where they otherwise would have. I suspect that's true, but I, I can't say for sure. But that's my guess that it's this is particular to private banks. Okay. And and Truxton kind of fits the profile you, you you're interested in in terms of overlook because it's basically a single single bank or low beta or what I mean, I, how yeah, did it first so, get on your I mean, Truxton's radar? a bit of an issue for us in terms of getting enough shares. Yeah, it d- um, doesn't trade much. Like, I don't. Did any trade shares trade today? I don't. I don't think so. I don't know if it did. There are days where it doesn't trade. Yeah. Uh, I would. My my best guess is it trades around the level of fifteen thousand dollars a day of stock. 
you know, which I'm averaging out. I mean, it might trade $150,000 and then not trade for nine days, you know, yeah. but, um, yeah, so that's an, that is an issue for us in the managed accounts. And to be <laughs> completely honest, you've hit on a stock that, uh, we go back and forth on whether we would buy for the managed accounts, but don't on the issue of whether we buy for the fund. Yeah. If you get a block for it, we would buy it in the fund and the managed accounts. Um, you know, the, here's the thing with the managed accounts is that I'm, a, we have people commit money and stuff to the managed accounts before they fund it. Uh, you know, they tell us that they're going to, and then they take a little while to do it. And then the money comes in and then it takes a little while till we um, get that money invested in stocks for them. So, you know, sometimes I know that, uh, although we have whatever assets under management and stuff, um, we may have a million dollars more next month than we do this month, yeah. right? And I know that as we're buying stocks. And this sometimes presents a problem in things like Truxton, where you can imagine that if it trades $15,000 a day, and I'm thinking, oh, even after I get through filling that, I'm going to have another million that needs to be put in to do this. And I want to make sure that um, clients are getting similar allocations that way. Um, you know, uh, it just it presents a problem sometimes on some stocks and Truxton is a very good example of it where I'd be very happy to own the stock and own it for the long term, but I'm aware of the difficulty of consistently getting liquidity in it, even though I think it's possible to get a lot of shares because it's not a small company. It has over a hundred million dollar market cap, I think. Yeah. If I, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it's not tiny that way or anything. And it probably has enough float um, that we could get it, but it doesn't have enough consistent liquidity that it's that easy to buy regularly without having an effect on the price especially i mean that's the other thing i don't we just talked about how i don't do technical stuff and things but i'm aware of what our own buying would have uh, the effect it would have on a stock and if you look at the very long-term chart for truxton one problem you'll see is it doesn't go down a lot uh, that is a stock that has not declined down <laughs> much at all and hasn't dropped a lot on a heavy volume much ever uh, like maybe once or twice uh, in years and years. Uh, those are tough to buy a lot of regularly without having an effect on the price. And like I didn't get into how we bought the Necker, we bought everything, but we had an awareness of what events were happening. I was looking at shareholder lists. I was thinking about, you know, okay, so if this dividend's paid on this day, I've got a lot of people going to sell out before then, after that, whatever. You you would like it when there's a day where there's a huge amount of volume that you can get a lot of the shares that you want. We didn't get very evenly filled on Necker. And if it had traded like it did every day, um, we might have had a lot more trouble buying that. And the problem with Truxton is I don't see in its history a lot of really heavy volume days or something. I see a trickle that's all the time. Yeah. And if you try to buy, if we try to buy it all the time, we would have a major effect on the price. Very, very major effect because there's just no one that sell, would be selling enough to us. Yeah. So we'd have to find, figure out some ways of how to do that um, in a way that didn't have a big effect on the price. And the problem is usually not buying a lot of stock. The problem is more buying consistently. Like if we're a regular buyer, that's what really can have an effect on stock prices. Gotcha. No, I, I just thought it was interesting because you're absolutely right. I mean, so December of last year, we had a big drop in the stock market mm -hmm. i mean you know but i think truxton that's the longest drop it's had in five years and it only dropped nine percent um, yeah i'm sure if you graph the s p against truxton you'd see a lot more opportunities where it'd be easy to get uh, easy to have um, low points in the s p than you would in truxton yeah um that that is not a graph that you want to see if you're looking at something with low volume um because yeah i mean we're, we're very aware of that and stuff and um people talk a lot about that about what our costs are in terms of trading and things and i think they assume that they're higher than they are but they probably underestimate how difficult it is sometimes to get things so they think that we have more we have more i think they think we have more of an effect on the price and we end up paying more than we initially intended to 
more often than what really happens is we have trouble getting shares. Yeah. No, that makes um, sense. I mean, Trucks yeah. did not trade any shares today. Um, they were recording on a yep. Friday. Um, and, and so there were no sh- shares traded today. I've had no problem getting shares, but I'm buying much less than you. So, yeah. The, and the, well, yes. And the other thing is, I honestly don't think we'd have problems getting the shares once. I'm yeah. pre- I think we could figure out how to do that. Uh, what I think we would have a problem is this is not something. I mean, you know, like if you think about what people do, like say Buffett or something, he wants to buy Apple. What he's probably does is, okay, well, I think I can buy 20% of the volume of Apple all the time while I'm buying it. Okay. Yeah. Well, 20% of the volume of trucks, and if we try to do that, you can think about that. That's not a lot, and uh, that could cause problems. There's some days where there's no volume. We can't buy it that way. And it's more that, I think, than people realize is that how inconsistent some stocks are in, in those sorts of things. Like I bought a stock um, that didn't trade on many days personally um, where I bought, uh, you know, um, I would say – Mm, probably a month's worth of volume in a single trade with no problem. Yeah. And so, and then just personally, and so it's so easy to do. It would be nice and a fun that we could do that. Uh, in managed accounts, it presents a problem because, you know, sometimes you get, you know, a, a new client every week that you have to put in or something, you know, and they have to go in. And so it does create a problem that way. I mean, they're nice things for the clients. They get to see it just like a, a normal, um, portfolio like you would if you you know just managing it yourself personally yeah but the advantage to the fund which you don't get to see all that is that it's all pulled together in a way that you can buy um in bulk at certain times at certain opportune times and stuff so yeah truxton is a great example of something that i'm not saying we can own in the managed accounts but it's something that we do talk about of can we really own this in the managed accounts and yet it's something that we'd say a fund we can own it yeah no i just i appreciate the the candor i mean it just I thought it was a good example, especially what you're talking about at the end of kind of the differences for you know our audience of what an individual investor can do and um, what professional investors might struggle with more. Um, yeah, I've, I've definitely seen. Mm-hmm. I've definitely seen the acquisition of stocks, like in terms of liquidity, doesn't really hurt you necessarily unless you have to be buying all the time. Because that four right. million dollar market cap stock, I basically bought three to six months of the volume in on two separate days because you just mm-hmm. put a large enough order out there. And if someone's out there, they've been waiting for it, you know, right. they might hit it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what you have to do. I mean, there are other ways to try to do it, but that's mostly when, I mean, in terms of when individuals ask me about it, I say, look, you, you don't know um, who there is that has a similar size of what you want until you put out that bit, until they know it because they don't know it. Um, they have to be aware that there is the potential for that to happen. And so when you put out a bid like that, they can see that. I know that people are afraid to do that kind of thing for a variety of reasons. I mean, I know that most people like to buy a little bit, in, in, in whether it's illiquid things or whatever. Um, just in general, they think, oh, I'll buy 10% today and then next week I'll buy another. And, you know, I'll, ease, I'll move into this position slowly or whatever. And sometimes even longer than that. That's a problem for illiquid things because – um, the best way to get filled is usually with large blocks that are similar to what you want. Yeah. Um, and so, and I know that sounds weird to say large blocks, but in super illiquid stocks, even what you want as an individual is a meaningful block in that, like someone may be wanting to sell their entire position to you, not that people want to sell a little bit to you. Yeah. And like market makers are not going to be helpful in those sorts of things. Even when they're there, um, you're going to realize that, you know, as soon as you buy from them once that liquidity isn't really there from them, they're not going to stay selling to you at that price. So you have to find someone. And the easiest way to do that is to be, you know, honest about how much you want. Um, you know, you can be picky about price, but be honest about the volume that you want or, or you're not going to get filled. Yeah. 
No, so I, I really appreciate this, this discussion. Um, I think we'll wrap it up here. Um, want to thank you for your time and coming on the podcast. I know we've gone a little bit long, so I really appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything that you want to promote? Any, um, how would people like to get in touch with you if they want to invest with you? Um, that sort of thing. Uh, well, I would say that I do a podcast with Andrew um, every week. And so if they like investing podcasts like yours, then they probably like ours. Um, and the easiest way to find out all information about it is about everything we do is to follow Andrew on Twitter, which is at focus compound, no ing. Um, I, you know, everything's through Andrew. I don't, uh, respond to people reaching out to contact and stuff. The phone numbers you'll see, the things on the website and everything is all goes through Andrew. So, you know, his Twitter is the good thing to follow to know everything about what we're doing. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'll put all that information in the show notes so that people can have an easy way to get in touch with y'all if they are interested. So thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me very much. Thank you for listening to the DIY Investing Podcast. Please visit our website and subscribe to our email list at DIYinvesting.org for guides, videos, and resources to help make you a better investor. The DIY Investing Podcast is presented for general informational and entertainment purposes only. I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile, and I have not provided investment advice. The information presented on the DIY Investing Podcast should not be construed as investment advice. The views and opinions expressed on the DIY Investing Podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's host or sponsors. DIY Investing, its producers, sponsors, and host, Trey Henniger, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based upon information or viewpoints presented on the DIY Investing Podcast.